Hello, Ripticket listeners, Jack here. Now, you know what happens when I usually have to do a message like this for the podcast. It means that this particular episode has got some pretty heavy themes and topics, and we want to give you a little bit of a heads up as to what to expect. This week's Ripticket review unfortunately contains topics related to sex, phallic imagery, and a lot of that kind of 15 certificate thing. So, if you have issues with any of these topics, we've got a big archive of episodes here on the podcast feed for you to enjoy. But if you are sticking around, get yourself comfy. It might be a dark episode, but this week's Rip Ticket Review is still very much on form. In a week where Christopher Nolan revealed his latest mind flip, UCLan students celebrated another year of hard work at their Students' Union Awards, and Zack Snyder finally got his way with Justice League. What else would you need from a movie podcast and two blokes talking about Ridley Scott's sci-fi masterpiece? Hello, wherever you are listening or watching, and welcome to the Rip Ticket Review, a movie podcast that apparently you can hear much better in space than a scream. I'm Jack Smith, and joining me over the power of the internet to discuss all things alien is the Ripley to my Kane, good afternoon, Dan Carver. Good afternoon, Jack. And yes, we are talking about Alien, just the film Alien, not the franchise. No. Um, but yeah, Alien, the 1979 science fiction horror film directed by Ridley Scott. And it's it's a masterpiece, in my opinion. It was met with critical acclaim then, and it's met with critical acclaim now by anyone who watches it. It's... It's so important that it was placed in the uh, film archives in the United States National Film Registry. It was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, I would say all three. And it's been called one of the greatest films of all time. I mean, what, what more can we say about Alien apart from what hasn't already been, we've not already said. And the focus on this episode is, of course, around the main character, uh, Ripley. Ellen Ripley, yes. who was played by Sigourney Weaver. Rather interesting time to have a female protagonist in a very male-centric, dominated genre, wouldn't wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, back back then, it, this was two years after Star Wars had come out. We'd been introduced to the Princess Leia character. It was very, still very male-centric at the time because Hollywood was in its old ways by then. <laughs> this film quite literally changed the game. Pretty much did so, and Ellen Ripley um, is one of my favourite female leads, mm. um, one of my favourite female characters, because the whole of the Alien franchise, uh, sorry, the whole of the Alien movie just revolves around her fighting against... Uh, the, the, you know, well, she doesn't even fight the Alien, does, does she? She sort of like runs away from it and tries to outwit it. Essentially, this is not a very masculine sort of I'm going to grab a gun and shoot this alien film. In fact, we actually we try to we, we see that in the film, don't we, don't we, where they hunt the they try to hunt the alien down mm. um, only to find that they are themselves the ones that are being hunted. Yeah. Um, where, where do we even begin? There's well, so think, much to unpack. I think it goes without saying uh, this podcast could get very uncomfortable for some of our viewers and listeners. So be warned, we may approach some pretty controversial topics. So err on the side of caution this week folks this could get very real very quickly 
Yeah, we are. We're, we're basically, the reason that we're going into that is because in order to discuss why Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, is the greatest female protagonist, we have to confront the truth about the um, what what she's going up against, which is the alien. And the alien it, itself. Well, let's start with its design. The alien was uh, designed by the Swiss art now late, sadly, Swiss, uh, Swiss artist H.R. Uh, Geiger from concepts on his book Necronomicon. And H.R. Geiger was a surrealist, uh, surreal artist. He was very well known for con- uh, combining phallic imagery with sort of uh, horror images. And if you have a look at his works, you, 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 you'll see what I mean. I mean, I think one of his um, what one of his big art, big pieces of art was called Pen- I think it was called Penis Envy. Ooh. And it's just loads of penises. Like uh, it, it's weird. It's 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 really weird. And to be fair, I have a lot of respect for the guy. It, it, it was, um, you, you know, his his most dis- distinctive stylistic sort of innovation is the representation of human bodies and machines in a very cold biomechanical uh, relationship and he's actually got some restaurants as well that were made in his honor um there is uh, they're called geyser bars wow um yeah which is it's it's um they're, they're the um the two geyser bars are in switzerland apparently in i'm gonna butcher this now in greer isn't sure that's that's weird um but yeah so there's that <laughs> yeah um but yeah, HR Geiger designed the um, alien. One thing that made now, a thing in your post, you sort of like dropped upon this that it, it, really Scott wanted to create jaws in space. Yeah, that's what he was originally pitched as. That was the literal, the literal pitch that he went to with Fox. Like, I want to make jaws, but in space. That's all he gave them. Yeah, which. It, on its own sounds pretty a, a decent idea what he ended up making however was a slasher movie in space because the idea you know the, the, there are themes of sex and sexual violence in alien these are inescapable mm. and these are deliberate as well there was a documentary um, called The Alien Saga. It was a TV documentary in 2002. Alien screenwriter Dan O'Bannon explained, and I quote, I'm going to attack the audience. I'm going to attack them sexually, which is a really, really weird thing to say. But that's what movies, that's what slasher movies do. They attack you sexually because, of course, slasher movies themselves are comments on the degradation of the social standards that they are made in. In fact, if you look at like the 80s sort of slasher movies where you had uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, Halloween, um, you know, the Jason series. Basically anything that would go on to become known as a video nasty. Pretty much. Each of these would feature different... Prota- you know, different protagonists, that's the wrong word, uh, victims, I would say. Yes. The protagonist would always be a woman mm. who was 99 times out of 100 a virgin. Mm. She was clean cut, didn't do drugs, didn't do any of this, whereas the rest of her friends were slightly less so. Um, there's an old sort of... Mm, mean that if you have sex in a slasher movie you're the first to die mm. because of course premarital sex is wrong in the 80s 
and um, apparently a, a way of getting that message across was to create a slasher film which butchered people. And here's, here's an interesting thing. To this very day, slasher movies are still about the declining standards of morality in the day they were made. I mean, look at Unfriended. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? I was watching that, and I was watching Unfriended in the cinema, and I was like, my God, how much hatred does this director have for people? I seem, to, I seem to remember when Unfriended came out, the team at the mm. local cinema were discussing it quite in depth in the staff room afterwards, and they were trying to convince me to see it, but I said, guys, I don't have the time, I don't want to commit myself to watching a film about social media, which I use a lot. Yeah. I, 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 I loved what Unfriended tried to do... I, I honestly it was stout it was stout to get the 15 certificate oh yeah i does my nuts in when directors do that stop washing out 15 year olds shouldn't be watching movies about people dying that's for 18 year olds yeah. stop washing <laughs> out read but, the guidelines and make good 18 certificate movies again i know anyway so slasher movies where does this fit into alien because the alien in aliens in alien sorry <laughs> is uh, uh, essentially a slasher movie villain mm. now one thing that's interesting about the alien in this is that it is not from a race of makers it is not an intelligent creature in the sense that it hasn't created this wonderful utopia it hasn't created its own society which is solved all of mankind's ills it has you know it is a primal creature which is only concerned with the survival of its race much like an ant or a termite you have a qu an alien queen yep. which then spawns out the egg it was at this point that the Facebook stream went down briefly. Dan talks about the idea of the alien being a xenomorph, and we rejoin this week's Rip Ticket review as we discuss Alien vs Predator. They, the, the Alien vs Predator games tried to create a origin for the xenomorph, and the origin was that the Predator realised that there was very few prey that it could keep up with. And so it created its own, and it created Xenomorph as a means of giving it the ultimate challenge. And that the, the Predators created the Xenomorph, and that's why it has this acidic blood, and that's why it can clamber along um, ceilings, and that's why it, it's such an expert hunter, because it was designed literally to give the Predators a challenge. Now, obviously, that's not canon, but I've got to tell you, that's not a bad origin, is it? That's not that a bad really origin story at all. That's that was a pretty. Good, I was like, oh, I hope they make that canon because that that was, you know, when I when I first came across that, I was like, ooh, now that's how you put two universes together. But it wasn't, and uh, we got the Alien versus Predator movies, which we don't really want to speak about. Or no, we don't, we don't, we don't speak of them. We, we don't no. speak of them about as much as my laptop just crapped out then on my end of the stream. <laughs> so, Facebook viewers, apologies <laughs> for the brief technical issues then. Where we are back online um, now. Wicked. Um, and then we got Prometheus, didn't we? 
Um, yeah, which was and then, which was seen to be the big comeback, but the fans didn't enjoy it as much as the original films. No, and then Alien Covenant, which was released at the same time as Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. 2, and then, yeah. like you correctly said, it got buried, which explains why I've never heard of it. Um, yeah, it came I, out I, around the same time that uh, Guardians 2, and it was also around the time Wonder Woman came out, which also has a strong female character in it. Yeah. What a time for Alien Covenant to come out. Two giant juggernauts. And it, my it had no didn't chance. Because it was a construction site at the time. <laughs> yeah, it had no chance at all. Yeah, no but, chance in hell. So, Alien itself, uh, the Alien is very much designed around sexual imagery and it is designed to make people feel very uncomfortable very, very quickly. Mm. Now, it is important to understand that sex and discomfort in movies, in horror movies, go hand in hand. Because if you think about it, if you can make the idea of sex uncomfortable and somewhat horrific through the use of allegorical means in movies, you've kind of succeeded in horror. Because, of course, what is more What's a more violating, you know, emotional feeling in a movie for a viewer than watching something as pleasurable as sex being distorted? Mm. So, and, and you know, take Dracula. He, he, he's a monster. He, he sneaks into women's bedrooms. He sucks their blood in their sleep and turns the, you know, and turns other people into vampires. That's crazy um you know slasher movies as well all the frisky friends are decapitated the virgin escapes i mean heck it follows um which was directed by robert mitchell followed that trope to a t go watch it 2014 horror film made for horror fans very highly recommended Um, it was on film four a couple of weeks ago if i remember rightly no way, that's crazy. But yeah, it follows... Been, I'll, it, I'll quickly check. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the idea of sex being combined, and it goes back further than that as well. It goes back to our ancestral stories about incubi, succubi, creepy fairies that abducted young women. You know, so it, it's a common trope. And we see it in Alien um again dan o'bannon explained he was going to attack the audience sexually and and o'bannon and ridley scott were fans of a book called necronomicon which was swiss artist hr geiger's lovecraft uh, sorry uh, hr geiger's love letter to lovecraft try saying that three times when you're drunk and the <laughs> book is full of disturbing very disturbing sexual imagery and it was for that reason why H.R. Gaja was brought on board to give the alien universe that incredibly eerie feel that starts immediately from the opening credits. Most space-themed science fiction movies have an orchestral opening, heroic... Um, you know, you're, 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 you know, it's, it's an adventure in space. It's about mankind triumphing, triumph, triumphing. Oh, I can't say that word. Um, being victorious. Thank you. Over the, you know, the alien. You know, let's have an orchestral score. Not seen in Alien. It's a very, very slow. Jer- 
creeping score as the word alien is written in a very basic font um that bit by bit comes into play over it's the almost past- like Jerry Smolt Goldsmith was given the brief to start amping up the tension from the minute that 20th Century Fox logo came off screen. Exactly, when yep. I, and don't. When I play, because I, I play a lot of board games uh, in my spare time, we played the Alien Cosmic Encounters board game uh, with a few friends of mine, and we had the soundtrack on in the background just to amp that tension up a little bit more. You can't not do Alien without that Jerry Goldsmith score. They're like yeah. hand in hand with each other, and you do not get that with many films. No, and the, the, and as the camera is creeping over the emptiness of space, the isolation, we see the egg-shaped planet come into view. The word alien is formed. There has never been a more terrifying sci-fi opening than that, and there never will be. And I am like, if anyone can create something along the vein like that... That isn't alien related. I will tip my hat off to them, but it hasn't been done so far. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. And you are right that um, the brief showed that you know Fox wanted the the tension. Sorry, the 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 powers that be wanted the tension to start the moment that um, that that's that the uh, Fox logo disappeared. Interestingly enough, the original one before he got that instruction was the heroic version. Wow. And yeah, which was really crazy. And essentially when it changed, everyone was a massive fan of it, but the person that made the music. <laughs> but well, again, again, Jerry Goldsmith is quite, was quite critical of his own stuff anyway. So I'm not surprised yeah. in the slightest. He wanted it to be perfect. Mm. So the movie starts off with everyone waking up. We get to know our characters, um, which I think I'm going to go as far as saying that most of these sort of movies that are based on the space station begin with people waking up from hypersleep or something along those lines. I think Alien was the first one to do that. I might be wrong. Um... But it certainly was the one that made it the most popular. Um, that that sort of trope that if you're on a spaceship, you have to go into hypersleep in order to um, essentially sus- you know, suspended animation. And we're introduced to Dallas, captain of the Nostromo, um, the space the, the spaceship that everyone's on. Uh, Whip- Ripley, Whipley, <laughs> Ripley, the warrant officer played by Sigourney Weaver. Lambert, the navigator, Veronica Cartwright. Uh, you know, you've got Brett, the engineering technician, Kane, the executive officer, played by the late but always great John Hurt, Ash, Ian Holm. Hmm? Uh, John yeah. Hurt, what a fantastic talent. I know, right? Um, Yafat Koto is Parker, Ian Holm, Ash, and then, of course, Helen Halston as the voice of Mother and Nostromo's computer. And by the way, if your ship is named the Nostromo, that's when you know you're in for a really bad time. <laughs> um, immediately, you know, we're introduced to these characters. We immediately assume that Tom Skerritt, playing Dallas, Captain of the Nostromo, is going to be the hero of the movie because, of course, he's going to be the hero, isn't he? Look at him. He's tough. He's rugged. He has facial hair. And, you know, he, he has got to obviously be the hero of the story. 
And they are awoken by the uh, computer mother who informs the crew of the Nostromo that there is a distress beacon that is, um, you know, that, that has been picked up. Interesting thing about the computers that I didn't notice until it was pointed out for me. They were like, what's missing from this computer, Daniel? And I was looking at it going, I, I don't know. The computer has no mouse. Oh. It's so weird to think that in those days that nobody drew the thought. Actually, is there going to be a, a, like a hue, an interface where that people can interface with the computer, like like um you know they they can point and click. No, it's all done on keyboard command. How crazy is that, man? I I didn't know when I realised that I was like that's really interesting, and it's the same Thinking for most of those. It, well. it, it it is it is it's kind of surreal to see how. Uh, Hollywood have evolved their presentation of computers over the years because I was lucky enough to see 2001 on a big screen a couple of years back and even then well, they really. were like there's, there's no interface with how you just speak to it and he'll he or she'll respond and yet here's Alien with Mother no mouse, probably a few keyboards here and there because gay typewriters were the thing at the time to think over the 30 years how all that's evolved and Hollywood have realised, yeah, maybe we've actually got to pay attention to technology a little bit more to make our science fiction a little bit more believable. It's crazy, man. My mind was blown when I first read that, when I first realised that. Anyway, after much deliberation, the crew decides to um, go to this distress beacon, which is on the planet. They go down and they... Um, they they find that the signal is coming from a derelict alien ship. Uh, Ripley deciphers part of the transmission, uh, determining it to be a, a a warning, but she cannot relay the information um, to those who have entered on the ship. Meanwhile, Kane discovers um, a, a, a large sort of chamber area containing hundreds of large egg-like objects. Uh, he breaks the cardinal rule about exploration and touches one of them. A creature springs out, breaks through its helmet, latches onto his face, and uh, Kane is unconscious. They attempt to remove the creature from Kane's face, but they have to stop when they discover that the blood is extremely corrosive acid and melts through met metal like hot knife through butter. It later detaches and it's found dead and everyone's like, oh, excellent. Um, it it's all fine. They repair the ship. Off they go. And Kane awakens with some memory loss. However, during a meal, he convulses and chokes, and an alien creature bursts from Kane's chest, killing him, and escapes into the ship. And yes, and yes, I am aware of that piece of trivia that Ridley Scott did not tell his crew that that alien was going to burst from his chest. It is a trivia piece that everybody knows. It's been on many <laughs> pub quizzes over the years. It's been on many pub quizzes. Ridley Scott did not let any of his crew know that that was going to happen and when there's a massive explosion of blood from the chest and the crew are like that's an actual natural reaction because ridley scott was a bit of a <clears throat> that was mean it's ridley. yeah that was mean but um yeah <laughs> it, it, it was it's an interesting it was an it's it's one of my favorite scenes actually and i think that's one of my favorite scenes of pure horror out there it yeah, just, it, it just gets it nowhere. so perfect. So perfect. It really is. So the creature just bolts out of there. The crew tries to locate it with tracking devices. They try to hunt it down, but the creature um, 
it, it essentially hunts them one by one. It's pretty grim, to be honest. Um, and, um, we won't go into any more of it, but yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's you down. Know, you it all know what happens down. from there. Yeah, it eventually comes down between Ripley and a cat versus um, the alien. And yeah, go watch it. It's 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 a great movie, and it pretty much it, it is one of the first movies that showed a, a female lead. Um, I want to actually say I'm just going to double check this, um, but I am absolutely pretty sure that where are we? Uh, at least 1987. I think it is safe to say that the um, fact that it was a female protagonist was such a new thing. It did inspire Samus Aran in Metroid. Oh, Metroid. In 1987. Wow. Yeah. Indeed, although it is important to understand that Samus Aran was not revealed as a woman unless you completed the game under a certain amount of time. And even then, a lot of people didn't believe it. They were like, oh, no, it's just a thing. And then Metroid 2 came out and referred to Samus as a she. And it's like, oh, right, yeah, it is. (laughs) Anyway, so Ridley Scott creates, you know, the greatest science fiction ever. And Ripley is the greatest female ever living. Why? Because she is going up against a monster, which is essentially the perversion of sex in, like, horrific form. Mm. Let's start with the alien designs. Designed by H.R. Geiger, who, as we have gone on about, is a bit who, who created the Necronomicon, and the um, which was the book dedicated to Lovecraft, and I, I'm trying to find. Um, I, I cannot remember the uh, piece of artwork that it was based on, but because there is, but in the original artwork that it was based on, um, you can see that it the, the art looks very much like the alien, except there is a very clear penis shape on the back of its head because it's hr geyser so he transfers yeah, that I have, over I, I can see pictures of it here and i can see exactly what you mean wow yeah. there you go interesting fact hr geyser also designed the batman forever batmobile but it was uh, replaced with something Thank God else. it was replaced i wouldn't have liked to have seen that at batman forever hell no it was actually looks really interesting. Um, but yeah, so they made several conceptual paintings of the alien. Now, everything to do with alien is about the perversion of sex. Let's start off, you know, and let, let, let's start off with the alien life cycle. Stage one is the egg. Now, from a female aspect, you can think of this as a point of conception, you know, the female egg. But when the egg opens and the the, um, chest burst comes shooting out, you could also argue that that's an aspect of ejaculation. Mm. And this is the first encounter that anyone has with the alien. Whilst they're exploring the derelict ship that's giving off the stress signal, Cain comes upon these eggs the egg was present in the opening title sequence of the alien. It's the shape of the arc the, that uh, that the camera go the pans from left to right over what looks to be a planet. 
um the planet is a gigantic egg shape so it's already sort of like giving off those sort of vibes already and the egg is where everything starts and you can argue as well that the egg is where everything starts from life as well the sperm is implanted into the egg and that is what it creates the, the human you know the the, the the fetus in this case on the, on the conceptual level um the egg it kind of establishes a common ground with our own human beings as an unfertilized, um, as uh, you know, as an unfertilized egg. It's it's crazy. There are you know, and so the egg, you know, opens up, releases the face hugger, and um, which is stage two of the life cycle of the alien. Now, again, I have to warn people: we are going to go into some pretty deep territory here. Mm. Um, so now's your chance to turn around. Here yeah, we we'll go. We'll give you a couple of seconds and time to get heavy. Cool. So the face hugger latches on to the um, victim in this case, Kane, and it forces a, probu- a proboscis down his throat, where it implants the um, larvae of the alien which then uses the human host this is a pretty dark like this is a really dark implication of um and it was described by alien writer dan o'bannon as homosexual oral rape that's mental and it was meant and it was an effect meant to discomfort male viewers as well out that is mental and then of course you've got the chest burster which is um a phallic creature it looks it it, it bursts out it looks deliberately like um a, a phallic object a penis it it bursts out of the um the chest in a bloody birth um from the female aspect again you've got a bloody birth from the abdomen if you wanted to go deeper you could argue that it is um birth from rape it's you know very very dark and then it becomes the adult where the drawers drip with with secretions that melt um from the male yeah that's from the female aspect you've got the sexual secretions and you've got the male aspect which is the double phallic head it kills by forcibly penetrating the victims with the double phallic head and the thing about the the the, the alien as well which by me I should have mentioned at the beginning is that it's very it has masculine um elements and feminine elements to its appearance it is not a hulking brute it is a slender you know black almost oily creature that it it doesn't jump out at you and then soak up loads of bullets it clambers into the shadows and it comes up from behind or in the shadows and then bam gets you that way um it has a very rubbery latex like appearance it's it's very very crazy and the alien essentially murders every single person it can find through, you know, by hunting it. And this is where Ripley comes in. This is why we know that Ripley is going to be the hero in this. Why? 
Well, it's quite simple. When they bring Kane back, they drop Kane in the cargo hold and they're screaming at Ripley and they're saying to Ripley, let us in, let us in, you've got to let us in. Kane is, you know, he's in trouble. And what does Ripley do? She says, can't let you in because you've got an unknown contaminant and you have to stay outside for a certain amount of time because we cannot bring unknown contaminants into the ship. In other words, Ripley is the only one who is following the procedure. Everyone else is like, no, 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 don't follow the procedure. Let us in, let us in. And it is. That has parallels to certain events. Mm. Yeah. That's the only joke we're going to make about what's happened in this podcast. Do not worry. (laughs) Um, And that is that singular point. That one thing that Ripley does, which is where we clue in anyone who knows about their slasher film theory, clues in and goes, ah, the captain isn't the hero. Ripley is the hero. Because she is the one person who is saying to follow procedure. And in in the sense that it's kind of a a subversion of the uh, slasher films where the, the killer kills people who... They they go against the morality of the time that the movie was made. In this, the killer, which is the alien, is going against the people who don't follow the procedure of the spaceship. So, pretty interesting. And of course, turns out Ripley was right. They open the door. Um, I think it's Ash, isn't it, who, who opens the door, I think, and... Um, you know, Ripley's outraged. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? They eventually get him in sick bay. History is made. Mm-hmm. So you've got that. And as the movie goes on, Ripley realizes that she is going to be the only one to go up against this alien. She knows she can't fight it one on one. And, um, you know, she she has to basically use her brains to essentially find a way out of the situation um, to basically escape the alien and and figure out a way of essentially jettisoning it from the ship. Everything about this alien is phallic from its um, jaws, its um, um, pharyngeal jaws uh, with its secretions. And it's already phallic head, which is literally used to penetrate its victims to death. Additional fears are, you know, anyone who has sweated a pregnancy scare or has silently crossed their fingers waiting for an STD test knows that this alien is a thing to be, you know, this alien will give them a very uncomfortable feeling. The kills that we see from screen from the adult alien are all oppressively sexual in nature. Brett is penetrated to death um, by the phallus. And then um, as, as they drip with secretions, again, we see the melding of the female and male sexual characteristics. Xenomorph kills Dallas off screen, so we don't see the particulars of his death. Um, but we do see Parker killed and mostly Parker killed in mostly the same way. It was quickly captured, head bite from the jaws, dead. Um, 
this is also the suggested death of Lambert, the proxy, who is the proxy for the audience and the final victim. Um, you know, it, it, she, though she freezes in terror for a full minute while Parker yells at her to move. Um, it, it, the, um, the, 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 the tail of the creature sneaks up between the legs of Lambert and with the trajectory, the quick cut and the off screen screen posits, uh, the, the death, um, a penetrating death, which is sim- not symbolic, but literal. And if you are skeptical of this, um, which understandable because it is quite a dark viewing of this. Yeah. Really himself describes the actions in accordance with this interpretation in the screenplay. Um, he approaches Veronica Cartwright slash uh, in Lambert with his tail, and we get the sense of something really hideous because you hear off her off camera uh, emphasis added. Um, so yeah, you see, uh, it, it is entirely meant to be. So it only makes sense that Ridley is the only character to escape the Nostromo as it explodes. Uh, and we, we we see that Ridley is essentially the ultimate, you know, th- that to be, you know Ridley is the ultimate female hero in all of this. Why? Because much like slasher movies, she she wants to follow procedure. She is essentially going up against this creature, and. She has to use her brains in order to 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 get away from it. She doesn't think about going one on one with it. She decides to initiate the self destruct sequence and basically trap the alien on board. Now the movie was meant to end in there, but I do believe that Ridley Scott pushed for a fourth act where Ridley is about to enter into hypersleep. Uh, she discovers that the alien has managed to get on board, having wedged itself into a narrow space. So she has to put a spacesuit on and flush the creature out. And then Ridley opens up an airlock door, blowing the creature into space. And that's when Ridley shoots it with a grappling hook. And um, Ridley has to end up jettisoning in the alien. When it tries to grab onto the engine exhaust, Ripley fires the engines, blasting the creature away. To me, that scene was unneeded. I think that essentially, if the alien ended, if it ended as 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 it did with Ridley, you know, barely escaping the Nostromo and going into hypersleep, I think it would have made a better movie. I think having the aliens survive by jumping on the ship kind of diminishes the movie somewhat but it's you know it, it didn't do too badly in in that sense it could have gone a lot worse <laughs> so um i'm i'm okay with that but yeah that's pretty much ripley and the reason why i think she's one of the ultimate villains uh, sorry the ultimate villain the ultimate female hero the ultimate yeah essentially she is going up against a creature which and and she has to win by essentially following procedure and using her brains 
against a creature which is essentially sexual violence get personified mm. and yeah alien did very very well uh it did a number of sequels um do some you want to talk good, about some were bad yeah mm-hmm. some were good some were bad uh, yeah. so of course uh, as you quite rightly mentioned, Alien went on to become one of the big franchises for Fox uh, in the 80s and the 90s. Died a little bit in the 2000s with Alien vs. Predator. We do not speak of that. Uh, but of course, Ripley Scott has been quite protective of what has arguably become his baby. Uh, the most yeah. recent addition to the franchise was, of course, in 2017, Alien Covenant. As we mentioned at the top of this podcast, it got buried in the shuffle amongst other blockbusters. Uh, but arguably, the sequel, um, Aliens, which James Cameron had a bit of involvement in, uh, went down in infamy as one of the greatest sequels ever made, from what I understand. Yes, um, Aliens was the second instalment. Uh, it grossed $180 million worldwide. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Empire Magazine voted it the greatest film sequel of all time. It was far more... It was a little more action-y than the, the Alien, the, the previous movie, I thought. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that it was directed by James Cameron, who was much more of an act, uh, a direction... Uh, an action-orientated director... Whereas Ridley Scott, you can argue, it takes his time and builds up the tension, but it's still it's still pretty good. Don't get me wrong; um, oh, yeah. it is definitely the second best out of the Aliens movies. The first, obviously, being Alien. Um, I think, but again, this is where you see Rip Ripley in all her action, as she now she 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 um, evolves essentially from a slasher film survivor to an action hero so Uh, a fresh science fact just in um tomorrow is the anniversary of the first alien film coming out in america may 25th 1979 is when it came out in america so we are literally doing this podcast at the best possible time yeah alien premiered may the 25th it is as well oh my gosh we could not have picked that oh my word I think taking a week off last week has helped us more than we ever thought. <laughs> I know. Oh my words. But yeah, this is going to this is going to be our highest performing episode ever. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely brilliant. I'm really chuffed with that. That's actually yeah, made me got... really, really chuffed. <laughs> Uh, other facts here, of course, it got the R rating in America, unsurprisingly. However, the BBFC very nearly gave this film uh, a double A certificate, which is 14 and over. They they went and gave it the X eventually uh, at the request of Fox. Uh, they were like, if you give an AA, it would make it a little bit harder to tell this is a horror movie. So it is a 15 yeah. certificate nowadays, though. Here's an interesting one as well. Screenwriter Ron Chusset uh, uh, describes in an interview in the documentary, Dan, well, is Dan O'Bannon, puts his finger on the problem. What has to happen next is the creature has to get on the ship in an interesting way. I have no idea how, but if we could solve that, if it can't be put in, if it can't be that it just snuck in, then I think the whole movie will come into place. In the middle of the night, I woke up and I said, Dan. I think I have an idea. The alien screws one of them, 
It jumps on his face and plants its seed. And Dan says, oh, my God, we've got it. We've got the whole movie. So that is much more evidence that there is a lot of sexual themes happening in Alien. And again, why it makes sense that Ripley is essentially the hero. She's essentially fighting a sexual predator alien. Very feminist. Oh, yeah. Isn't that? Ridley Scott is a feminist, isn't he? If I remember rightly. I think he is. I'm not too sure about it, but uh, I think he might be. Yeah, I, I know that he's he's um yeah I I, I I'm not going to come out and and say that he at 100% is but yeah another another sort of example there um of how forward thinking essentially the crew was in creating this absolute genius and yet terrifying film in which the poster said in space no one can hear you scream. And that's pretty much all you need to know about how... That is such a terrifying line. Mm. In space, no one can hear you scream. It it was quite rightly on all of the posters uh, back in 2014 for the 35th anniversary. Of course, they reissued the director's cut into cinemas. I remember walking past and I seen the poster, Alien 35th anniversary, showing up this cinema. I was like, yes. You know it's a classic film when you look at the poster and you feel terrified. Now, critical reception to reaction to the film initially was a bit of a mixed bag. Some critics that were not um, favourable um, to science fiction gave positive reviews and others were not. Um, people like Variety, Sight and Sound, Vincent Cambry and, and Leonard Mayton were, um, Moulton, the reviewer, were mixed or negative. Um, but, um, for example, a review by Time Out at the time said the film was an empty bag of tricks whose production values and expensive trickery, can, trickery cannot disguise uh, imaginative poverty. Blasphemy. Um, you know, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were critical of Alien. Um, with what, Ebert is this going to critical? Well, Ebert called it basically an intergalactic haunted house thriller set inside a spaceship. Wow. And they said it was... they, they both And one of the several science fiction pictures that were real disappointments compared to Star Wars. Oh. Yeah. But Ebert later would reverse on that he gave his movie four stars on his great movie list, and he said Ridley Scott's 1979 movie is a great original. Siskel would go on to give the film three out of four stars in his original print review, um, and, he, and he would call it an accomplished piece of scary entertainment. So... Please say change the tune. But he said um, he listed upon the film's disappointments. For me, the final shape of the alien was the least scary of its forms, which I, I, I get. If you look at the alien without the shadows, um, it, it does look a bit more weird than scary. But in the shadows, whoo, that thing's terrifying. You ju- then, just proof yeah. that lighting is everything when you're making a horror film. Just that simple bit of shadow can can be the difference between an audience losing their minds and an audience laughing at how awful it looks. And one of the things that um, many many reviewers and many critics say 
about Alien is that they claim that it it is a uh, part of um, the genre known as rape movies, such as I Spit on Your Grave, um, which I kind of disagree with because... Yes, although there are sexual overtones and reproduction, you know, and, and themes about reproduction by non-consensual means and all of this happening to, like, a man, normally the idea of a rape movie is to break down the female lead and then build them back up by murdering, you know, the, the perpetrators. This doesn't happen. Um, instead, it's about um, playing on men's fear and misunderstanding of pregnancy and childbirth. And um, yeah, it's it's I, I so I, I wouldn't argue that it is a rape movie per se. I think it has those themes, but I I think it's more about fighting back against set, uh, said non consensual means of um, reproduction. So you could kind of call it, I guess, the anti rape movie. I I, I guess. Yes. It's well, crazy. Again, Fox about a field were, this. this is technically a Disney movie now because the Fox. Oh deal. my word! That's a Disney ride you don't want Mickey Mouse narrating. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, but it's 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 brilliant. I could go on about this movie all all day, but I I'm not. Um, I I end this by saying, please watch the movie. It is brilliant. Even to this day, people can learn about how to make a brilliant science fiction horror movie just by watching this. It is fantastic. I have the uttermost praise for this movie. It is one of my top favourite movies. Please watch it in a dark room with the sound turned up. Oh, yes. Thus, I'm just doing the usual check for any of this streaming services now uh it doesn't look like it's available on any streaming services but it does say here amazon have got it all good dvd outlets have got it and if anything get the whole set get the whole set do the whole franchise in one night and you can laugh at how bad three and four are you can watch prometheus and think oh god that was a disappointment then you can watch covenant and think yeah i'm glad i missed this in cinemas because it's not as good as the originals but one and two are arguably the defining moments for science fiction in the 80s it's set standard it's set a lot of tropes have come to we've come to know and of course as we've discussed this whole podcast it gave us the first proper female hero in a movie of its kind, yep. something which studios have done a lot more since then. If this movie hadn't have been made in 1979, we wouldn't have people like Gal Gadot popping up as Wonder Woman. Yep. We wouldn't be getting Black Widow in October. Yeah, this and film here's has the had thing a as big well. With, with most female protagonists nowadays, um, and I do not include Wonder Woman or Black Widow in this, um, by the way, but most female pr- protagonists, we are... F- it's forced down our throats that they are women and that is why they are a hero it's not because of any unique attributes that they possess it it's the fact that they are women hear me roar and it's one of the reasons why i didn't like the captain marvel movie because we discussed a lot about captain marvel when we did a radio show together yeah because if the captain marvel it was essentially Iron Woman, hear me roar, and it erased practically anything good about her personality. And that's why 
Wonder Woman was brilliant because it was never shot down her throat that we were, she was a woman. We were never reminded every five minutes she was a hero because she had these attributes that are heroic and she happened to be a woman. And that's what um, happens in Alien. You know, Ripley is, you know, has these heroic attributes. You know, she's brave in the face of danger. She does all all this crazy stuff. It just so happens that she's a woman. Mm. Which is really cool. And we will end this episode on a rather lovely little fact for you uh, that this has been adapted into a school play. I know I found that fact when I was doing my research earlier today and I was like, it's become a school play. I know they've wanted to do a lot of uh, Ridley Scott movies in the past, like Gladiator was mentioned as well, but do tell more. Well, it happened in 2019 at North Bergen High School in New Jersey. They adapted it, the film, into a play. It had no budget and props and sets were developed from recycled toys and other items. It was put on social media. Um, he wrote, Scott uh, Ridley Scott wrote a letter of congratulations to the students where he wrote, my hat comes off to all of you for your creativity, imagination and determination. And he recommended that they consider an adaption of his film Gladiator for the next stage production. And oh, um, be amazing. Ridley Scott donated to the school to put on an encore performance. And Sigourney Weaver was in attendance. She got on the stage before the performance to congratulate the cast and crew for their creativity. How amazing that is, is that? Got pretty dark there that in this episode because it has to be. But we'll end it on a nice note. We will, <laughs> yeah, that is a very nice note yeah. to end it on. I mean, I've I've had to get used to seeing Ridley Scott before every movie I see because they they've put him in the new View pre movie I did, directed by his son Jake. His son's a director as well. Yeah, uh, but um, we are coming up on the end for this week's Rip Ticket Review. Let's talk about what we're doing next week, uh, because for the what first time, next week? Uh, well, we kind of discussed it last time we were together. We've done Alien now. Uh, for the first time, I get creative reins. We're going from a film about sci-fi to a TV series about sci-fi. In 1999, oh. Edgar Wright made a TV series called Spaced, and it was arguably the crux for three of the greatest comedy movies ever released. You know, films that are on ITV2 every single weekend. Those films are, of course, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz and The World's End. Next week, having binged the entire first series of Spaced, I'm going to go in-depth as to how one Channel 4 programme resulted in three of the strongest British comedies of all time. So we're looking at Spaced next week. I look forward to you taking the reins on this. So I've been taking the reins quite a lot. I think it's about time we give some to you. So, yeah. Yeah, well, this is what happens when you've been uh, busy working on two episodes of the journal back to back. Uh, I'm here at Lee Jackson Adventure. It's been hectic at the office lately. Uh, but that is next week from 3 pm uh, here on Facebook and on the podcast feeds. A huge apologies to the live viewers as well uh, for the brief outage we had about 10 past 3. We've got it all rectified. It should sound pretty seamless on the podcast recording of this because I'm going to work some post production magic. But. That is it for this week's Rip Ticket Review. It's been a, it's been a dark but a good one today. I've, I've, I've enjoyed talking about it, but it, it, like you say, it is quite dark subject. Um, but yeah, <laughs> hopefully not. Ho- yeah, hopefully so. people will still enjoy it and it, it shines a new light on the movie. 
Yeah, if anything, so, like, we've got quite quite a big archive now. We've got episodes about how Uwe Boll didn't quite perfect the video game movie. We've done episodes on The Crow. Uh, we've done an episode on The Room, and we were talking off-air. There's an update to the Tommy Wiseau story. I seem to hear that there's a lawsuit that he has just lost. Uh, Tommy Wiseau, unfortunately, has... Uh, well, no, not unfortunately. I don't know why I said that. Um, Tommy Wiseau has lost a uh, lawsuit in the room. Uh, he's been ordered to pay $750,000 to Canadian filmmakers um, as a uh, result of an, um, an unauthorised documentary about his 2003 cult classic, The Room. Um, Tommy Wiseau tried to block the uh, release of A Roomful of Spoons three years ago by filing an injunction against the Canadians who made it, accusing them of copyright infringement and invasion of privacy. The uh, copyright infringement comes from using um, parts of his work without permission, even though that it was well within the right of... Their use and the evasion of privacy is talking about where he's come from because Tommy Wiseau, as we know, likes to cultivate an air of mystery, even though the judge pointed out that they actually found out where he's from from public records and that anyone could have done it. And as a result, um, the arguments were called outrageous. And um, yeah, basically, he just got absolutely demolished. Oh dear. So, not, not, not good to be Tommy Wiseau right now, is it? Yep, uh, it's not at the moment. Um, it's a real shame because this is not the first time that Tommy Wiseau has misunderstood copyright laws. Um, you, you can't oh, yes, block yes. someone using your work for reasons that you don't like if they have fair usage to it, okay? If you don't like the documentary, Tommy, I have a really great idea. It's really simple and it doesn't cost you $750,000. goes a little site like this. Don't watch it. <laughs> don't watch it. Ignore it. Disown it. Say I've got no. Just say in your crazy voice, I've got nothing to do with it, and move on. Um, you may be sending, you know, and you know, Judge Judge Shabas, uh, who was the one who slammed down the judgment, said, "Why so? Maybe sensitive about this information um, that is about his past because he cultivated an aura of mystery around it. But disclosure of these facts is not, objectively speaking, something which can be described as quote unquote highly offensive." No, it's correct. Sorry, it's correct. Um, so yeah, for more information, go on to YouTube, search at something. I don't know. Um, yeah, but yeah, we've got right, so... talking about that film. <laughs> oh my, I know, right? Copyright fair used to Tommy Wiseau so nil, yeah. and of course, copyright two went off to the playoffs to face Manchester United for the cup. <laughs> and we end that ladies and gentlemen of the rip this episode of the rip ticket show thank you very much for tuning in um i recommend that, that, that was the rip ticket episode. review yep of the rip ticket that review rip we recommend ticket going out watching um some uh, episodes uh, sorry some videos of puppies and baby elephants to make you feel better after this one but you know Oh, um, it's horror. Um, thanks very much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. My name's right. been Daniel Carver. I've been Jack Smith. This has been the Rip Ticket Review. I'll be back on Thursday with this week's Talking Smith about film. Until then, we will see you at the movies. Take it easy. Debrief after that podcast, and we'll see you next week. Good evening, Bye. everyone. Bye. Bye.